Please be seated. And if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, we're going to look at verses 19 through 25 this morning. This is part three of, uh, of our worship series, and, and my guess is that this is the sermon you anticipated when, when you heard that we were doing a series on worship, a bit of an explanation of the elements of worship, which we did to some degree with communion. And this Sunday, it's why do we structure worship the way we do? Why do we have the elements we have and not other elements? Well, that, that'll be part of the sermon. Uh, that'll be the middle part. But this text before us is an encouragement to gather and not to, to neglect gathering. Okay, It's an encouragement to think of, yes, as you come into the sanctuary every Sunday, this is, I, I am, I'm coming to worship God, there's a, a me and God sort of relationship here, and there's nothing wrong with thinking that. But you're also here for the sake of the other people in this room. That you came this morning and we needed you. We needed your voice. <laughs> We needed your voice as we sang, we needed your voice as we affirmed our faith together, that there is something important about your being here consistently, Sunday after Sunday. And so that's also a part of this corporate gathering, worship as corporate gathering. Yes, we can worship all the time and everything in our lives, and the Bible speaks to that. And we'll look at that idea next Sunday, that all of life is worship. But this morning, what, what do we think is happening here right now? What is the benefit to this corporate gathering that we do Sunday after Sunday? With that in mind, let me read for us Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would teach us now from your word. Lord, we thank you for this calling every Sunday to come and to gather together and to worship, to worship your great name. And we thank you for the blessings that you bestow on us in this time of worship. And, oh, Lord, would you help us to hear your word now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Carl Truman is a favorite author of mine. He writes a lot on the topic of the Reformation. In fact, the reason I love the life of Martin Luther is because of Carl Truman. He has written much on Luther. He has a, a lecture series on Martin Luther that I've listened to I've just about six times through at this point. I find it so fascinating. About six years ago, at the time of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, six years, almost seven years ago now, I guess, he wrote a very brief and yet hard-hitting article on the Reformation where he admonished sort of armchair historians, of which I would consider myself to be one of those, for being too simplistic as they evaluate history. 
we come to overly simplified conclusions, says Truman in his article. And one of the ways that he tried to uh, demonstrate this was how we talk about the life of Martin Luther, that we portray Luther often as he was the one that shattered the authority of the Catholic Church. Well, that's not true. Church authority was already in a state of collapse and confusion by the day of Martin Luther. Medieval Catholicism was a complete mess, and Luther was responding to the chaos, not really creating it himself. He had the proverbial gas can in his hand that he poured onto the fire, but the fire had already started. And Truman goes on to suggest that it was not Reformation theology alone that reshaped the world of the 16th century, and he is absolutely correct. There were many other factors. There were theological factors that shaped the world, but also cultural and sociological factors that we ought to consider any time we evaluate the Reformation. Number one, to suggest that Luther was the first person to come and question justification by faith and the papacy and the sacraments, well, that's just not true. There were men and women who had been believing these things for hundreds of years prior to Luther, but Luther had an advantage that the rest of them didn't. He had friends in high places. He knew Frederick the Wise, which was one of the electors, the seven men that helped elect a new, a new pope, and he was really good friends with Luther because Luther was his prized faculty member at the university there in Wittenberg. He was protected in ways that others had not been. I don't think it's an understatement, or excuse me, an overstatement to suggest if we didn't have the printing press, we would not have had the Reformation. There's no way that without the ability to disseminate information in the, in the volume that it could be disseminated with a printing press, you don't get these ideas all throughout Europe. You do not have an effective Reformation. There's a great book that came out just a few years ago by Andrew Pedigree called Brand Luther. And it is all about how Luther used the print medium to accelerate the Reformation. Here's what Luther would do. He would take a book with which he disagreed with, he would write his corrective notes in the margin, and then he would reprint and publish the book. There were no copyright laws at that time. He could do that just fine. And so another advantage, culturally speaking, that he had that others did not. I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago about the fact that most of the church services that anyone would have been to in the time of the Reformation, they had no idea what the person up there was saying because it was in Latin, and most people didn't know Latin. But in the Reformation, literacy is on the rise, not to mention the fact that the Bible's now being translated into the vernacular of the people, into German and also into English. So now, rather than just listening to what somebody tells you the Bible says, you can now read it for yourself. Wait a minute, that's not what that verse says at all. Wait a minute, Catholic Church, that's, that's not at all what the Bible says about this or about that. Now the Catholic Church would look back to us Protestants and say, well, that's true, you do have a group of people that can now understand the Scriptures in a way that they hadn't before, and that's given way to all sorts of wacky theology. That's true. But I'll take that world rather than a world where we can't read and write and understand for ourselves. RTS, the seminary that me and Bobby and Mark all attended, they have a Latin phrase that they use, semper reformanda, always reforming. It's not a charge for the church to evolve, it's a battle cry, that we as the church, we had a reformation, but we ought always to be reforming ourselves, not creating something new, but always, is there, have we gone off the road a little bit on this theological point or that? Is there a way we always need to be reforming? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. 
we ought to always be seeking ways, whether it's a practical consideration or a theological one, to be reforming ourselves in the way that we have lost. So what is it today relative to what it was in the Reformation? Justification by faith, not so much our theological going off the road. I would argue that the theological point in our day that we have devalued is the doctrine of sanctification. We are new creations. We have new abilities and responsibilities. And yet, when the preacher starts to talk about obedience and duty and ought to, those have now become swear words to us, haven't they? And usually, the charge of legalism is levied against the person that suggests it. So, for us, what is it that we need reform on? I'm suggesting that it's the doctrine of, the reform, uh, the doctrine of sanctification. And yet, are there, for us, cultural and sociological things pressing in on us just as there was in the day of Martin Luther. I'm now quoting Carl Truman. He suggests that there is. Truman argues, well, I'm not quoting him yet. I'll quote him in just a second. Truman argues that the single greatest enabler of the modern world's attitude to religion is not a 16th century reformer, but actually someone more modern than that. He lays all of the responsibility at the feet of Henry Ford. And here's what he says. The Reformation may have familiarized the world with the concept of religious choice, but that choice became a reality for most people only with the advent of cheap and easy transportation. It was the arrival of the internal combustion engine and then the mass-produced automobile that really changed everything. It altered our relationship to time, to geographical space, and to our communities and all that it contained therein. It was the car that truly freed people from the constraints of having to worship in the walking distance of their home. The car made a church into choice, competing for customers in the marketplace of Sunday recreations. It turned all of us, Protestant and Catholic alike, into consumers. End of quote. I probably don't have to convince you of this, but the church is fragmented today, and the reason it's fragmented is because commitment is so low. Perhaps church as choice has highlighted, and I would argue this, the church as choice has highlighted our loss of the doctrine of sanctification. If you go to a church that says you ought to live this way and not that way, and you don't like what they say, well, you can just go two minutes down the road, and maybe that church will tell you what you want to hear. If we are to really understand the problems, though, that the church faces today, we've got to move beyond who should we blame. The church has become just one more consumer choice, hasn't it? And therein lies the problem. My church and my commitment is simply an option and not an obligation. And this is what the writer of Hebrews wants to press on us, I think, today. He wants us to see that gathered in corporate worship and the glorification of God in your presence is a joyful obligation that we ought to lean into and not question and certainly not become, in, uh, become consumers like the rest of the world has done. Before we get into the specifics of the service and the structure of worship, which I do want to talk about at length, is the writer of Hebrews correct? Is the gathered and corporate worship something we have devalued? Is it have we lost? I realize that, corporate, or that, that uh, mass transportation is a wonderful thing. And I also realize if your parish church in the 1600s taught all, so, all manner of terrible thing, that was a bad thing. <laughs> and it would have been nice that you could have easily gotten somewhere else to go to church. And yet for us, it's spun the other way, hasn't it? There's too much choice. If there's just one little thing I don't like, well, I can go all these other places and I've lost the commitment. 
the commitment that I have to God and the commitment that I have to my fellow worshipers. So this will lead us, I think, into three things. There's the spirit of worship, there's the structure of worship, and then there's the stimulation of worship, or what it stimulates us to do. I realize a long introduction, and yet I want to try to set us up to evaluate our own heart and the way we think about worship, and then now to dive into its importance. Number one is the spirit of worship. We haven't looked at the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, but let me tell you essentially what they say. They are filled with very heavy theology about who Christ is and this office of high priest and and all that he has done, a lot of Old Testament references and more. And now in our passage, he moves to exhortation. And the main exhortation is this, you now have confident access to God. And Old Testament believers didn't get to enjoy this, but we do. We have access to Him because upon Christ's death on the cross, what happened? The curtain was torn in two. It was split open. And that was to represent Christ's body as well. We now can come into His presence without any fear or trepidation. Why? Because of Jesus. They walked now confidently through that curtain into the presence of the Father. Whereas previously, you had to trust a high priest to do that, which he would do once a year, sort of this heart-pounding few minutes as he went into the Holy of Holies, and he made uh, sacrifice for the people of God. There's access, but there's also access with confidence, it says. Through Christ's work, we now can come in the full assurance of faith. Old Testament believers were constantly told, you know, don't get too close you know, be careful, you know, you need someone to do this and to do that, and that's not so for us today. It's, as our call to worship says, we come boldly to the throne of grace. Not arrogantly, not presumptuously, but boldly. Why? Because of what Christ has done. And we also come with gratitude. The reason that you can come into the presence of God is because you have been cleansed with the blood of Christ. It's not because you've kept yourself from all those bad things that you're not supposed to do. It's because of Jesus that you can come. Christians are to be grateful for this. Christians are, you need people to remind you of this. It is because of Jesus that we can come. It's because of Jesus we can be sincere with our worship. You know, God's desire to be with us is one of the main storylines of the Bible. We talk about this often here at Westminster. And we must acknowledge that being in the presence of God for many people in the Scriptures was a terribly unsettling thing. Just ask Isaiah. And yet, as you remember from our study of the book of James, we are invited to draw near to Him, to draw near, come closer. Yes, there's there's a, a heart reality to that. I need to draw closer to Him, spiritually speaking. Come into His presence. Don't be afraid. You come in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You confess your sins to God without fear of judgment, but in the hope of forgiveness. He's saying, I want you to do something, but here's why I want you to do it. I want you to draw near because of what Christ has done. He's not saying, draw near and maybe you'll find acceptance, or draw near and if you're good enough for long enough, then you'll be accepted. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying at all. 
in light of what Christ has done, now here's what I want you to do. And it makes all the difference in the world. And if you're like me, you need to be reminded of this. You are able to come into this place this morning because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's blessing here because of Christ. There's forgiveness, and there's redemption, and there's, there's repentance, and, and there's joy because of Christ. And it's an understanding of this theology that is so essential. You know, sometimes people will say of Christians, and sometimes people will say of Presbyterians, quite frankly, well, y'all get so caught up in all your theology and all your academics. Okay, maybe we do put an undue emphasis on that, but don't you understand why we do that? To not understand why I can come into His presence and what Christ has done, I'm the loser when I, don't, when I don't really dig into that. It's not the person that's simply ignorant of all these things. The author of Hebrews is not trying to make us great students and academics. No, he, do you see your hope? Do you see the Savior that you worship? It's why we take our catechisms and our confessions so seriously. We, we need this theology. When you're, when you've lost, when you've fallen into, into despair, when you when you have lo- when you're losing that hope, you need this reminder. This is what this theology is. What you sit back on, like a chair, it's what is firm. Secondly, is the structure of worship. We are called into it and reminded of the hope through Jesus. Now, why do we do what we do? Well, it's all in the spirit of what the writer says here of drawing near. Well, how do we draw near? Well, first of all, what does it mean to even draw near? I've suggested just a minute ago, it's more about your heart. It's not about a physical location of drawing near. It's about drawing near to Him in spirit and truth, as the book of John tells us. To find Him to be enough, to turn your eyes upon Jesus, to look full in His wonderful face as we sing. The Christian's hope has substance. As as the writer of Hebrews says back in chapter 6, he says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has already entered on our behalf. We come here with sincerity, it says, with full assurance of faith, with a clean heart. It's what we've just affirmed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I come here, I, there's no fear of condemnation. <laughs> yes, you know your sins, but Christ has cleansed you of all these things. We now draw near. And yes, we can do that in private worship and family worship, but we want to zero in now on corporate worship. You know, is there a topic in the church that evokes more discussion and disagreement than worship? Probably not. It's always been that way. We're not, there's nothing new in our age. We've all been shaped by the different Christian traditions maybe that we've grown up in. But often when we begin talking about worship, our sentences typically start this way. Well, what I really like in worship is, well, you know, what we've always done around here is, you know, what the people are really going to find acceptable and enjoyable is, surely there is a better approach, and indeed there is, is to consider the mission of the church, the beauty and importance of the gospel, It's to seek what is the biblical purpose of worship. Every church must develop its own philosophy of worship, and at least in part here at Westminster, 
We believe in what's called the regulative principle of worship. Derek Thomas defines that this way. The regulative principle states that the corporate worship of God is to be founded on specific directives of Scripture. It states that nothing ought to be introduced into gathered worship unless there is specific warrant of Scripture. In other words, we're not going to do anything in the worship service unless we are directed by God's Word to do that. You know, a different way of looking at this, as many denominations say, unless it's specifically forbidden in Scripture, well, we can do whatever we want. Uh, That's probably not a fair way to describe it, but you understand what I'm trying to say. Unless it's forbidden, we may do it, okay? We are suggesting with a regulative principle, unless it's specific, it, it must be specifically commanded or we will not do it. Here's what our book of, book of church order says. The Bible teaches that the following are proper elements of a worship service. The reading of Scripture, the singing of psalms and hymns, the offering of prayer, the preaching of the Word, the presentation of offerings, confessing the faith and observing the sacraments, and on special occasions, taking oaths. That's what we do in our services. Or maybe you've heard the story of the father who was showing his young son through a church building They came to a plaque on the wall, and curious, the little boy asked, Daddy, what is that for? His father replied, oh, that's a memorial to those who died in the service. And the little boy thought for a moment and said, well, which service, Daddy, the first service or the second service? As you know, the first service and second service, not a place for us to come and die, but a place for us to worship. And the worship services, first and second, are basically the exact same. No, we don't have the choir in the first service, and we have some extra instrumentation in the second service, but as far as the order itself, it's the exact same, and that's by design. We don't want to have a traditional service and a contemporary service. We don't think that wise. They're going to be the same because we're trying to achieve the same thing. So let me walk through each of these elements and give a brief explanation of what they are and why we do them. I've already explained this morning why we have a call to worship This is not me calling us into worship, it's God's Word calling us into worship. It's to draw our attention to the adoration of God, and we read a passage to that end. Then we have a prayer of invocation. It's asking, Lord, come and meet with us today. Would you send your Holy Spirit and make us ready to receive the goodness of your Word, make us ready to offer ourselves in this time of worship? That's, we're asking Him to come. There are prayers modeled like this in the Scriptures for us. And then we sing. Sometimes we sing old hymns, sometimes we sing psalms, occasionally, and sometimes we sing more contemporary hymns, like the Gettys stuff, right, that we often do. And the first hymn we sing is normally our big hymn. It's adoration and praise, and aren't we excited to be children of the living God? We even sang this morning, Speak, O Lord, right? A reminder, Lord, you are speaking to us through your word. This is nourishment to us, and we join our voices together. Westminster, I'm not just blowing smoke when I say this, but you are to be commended for how you sing. We are a singing congregation. Y'all go for it in these songs. And I'm, I'm, I'm being sincere when I say that. I know that because I've been a part of congregations that are not singing congregations. And I also know this to be true because I can't remember the last time we had a visiting minister come and preach in this pulpit who did not remark to me, wow, you really have a singing congregation. Thank you. 
I also say that because as Bobby and Mark and I sit up here, we, I'm encouraged by your singing. I, I, I see it's not just the volume, okay, although it's included in that. It's the sincerity which you so clearly sing. Yes, we have a choir and instrumentalists. They're meant to enhance our worship, enhance the beauty with which it's expressed. That's why we have uh, these instrumentalists and, and choir as well. From there, we go on to a confession of sin, which Bobby so wonderfully explained for us this morning. It's always appropriate for us to be reminded of of who we are. One, who we were apart from Jesus, but who we are now. We are new creations who still have sin that entangles us up. And we need to be reminded of that, repent of those sins. It's not a suggestion that maybe we are or not saved from that sin. No, you're saved from all the sins you committed in the past and all the ones that you will commit into the future. But it's still appropriate for us to confess those things. And sometimes we do that corporately, don't we? We we have a corporate confession, and then sometimes we have a silent confession. That's more individual, thinking of our own sinfulness by ourselves. Then we have an assurance of pardon. It comes on the the heels of the confession of sin, and that's by design because we don't want you to fall into despair in any way because of your sinfulness, but yet to be reminded there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we affirm our faith together, don't we? This has been a practice of the church for 2,000 years, and we typically say what? Christian, what do we believe? It is what you individually believe, but it's what do we believe as God's people? And we use the great confessions and catechisms of the church. Sometimes we recite a passage of Scripture together. And from there we go into the pastoral prayer, or prayers prayers of the people, as some churches call it, which of course is also appropriate. We pray for the sick and bereaved. We pray for our missionaries. We pray for the ministries of the church. We pray that God would prepare us to now receive the preached Word. And then we give of our tithes and offerings. That may seem a bit counterintuitive. Wait, are you telling me that the giving of, uh, of tithes and offerings is a part of the worship service? It is a part of the worship service. And we hope that you see it that way. It is an act of worship to give. We are giving God from what He has so abundantly giving us, given us. Our tithes are a giving back to God what belongs to Him for the work of the church. And yes, we are right to give even over and above that. Sometimes we do. We have a deacon's fund offering every time we observe communion, and we ask you to give joyfully to that. I know that it may feel as if you were only turning in your country club dues, but I can assure you that is not what this is. It is an act of worship as we give, and God desires us to do this cheerfully and generously and even sacrificially. We have a children's prayer now, you'll put that under the heading of prayer. I realize that there are some denominations, even perhaps some of you in this room, that feel that the children, no matter the age, ought to always stay in the worship service. That is a completely fine perspective to have. We offer for children age four through second grade that they be dismissed to a children's Bible lesson every Sunday so they can learn things on their level and they can be prepared to come into the service in time. Then, of course, there's the preaching of God's Word. It's the Word of God through the servant of God to the people of God. There is something about the preached Word that is unique. 
And the Scriptures bear this out. It's the admonishment that Paul gives to Timothy, preach the word, Timothy. And it isn't just go explain it to people. There's something, for, the formal preaching of God's Word is special. I'm not being self-serving as I say that. I believe that is exactly what the Scriptures tell us. And there's something about being here for that sermon that is also unique. Look, I listen to sermons as I walk my dogs, and I am thankful that I have that technology that allows me to have an intake of sermons, but I can't let that replace this. You need to be here. You need to receive it live and in person, and over and over and over again. It's similar to singing. Our presence matters for my sake and the sake of others. I'm receiving soul food, as one commentator suggested. I need it, and if I miss a few Sundays, I'll be malnourished. Then we have the sacraments. We don't do this every Sunday, of course, but we will in the second service. We have a baptism. These are not to be privately administered, as our book of church order says, but to do it in the presence of the congregation. That's why we include it in our worship services. And then I pronounce to you the benediction. Just as the call to worship, it's not my benediction. It's not my blessing. I'm pronouncing the Lord's blessing to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. It's, it's number six, right? May, now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm, I'm telling you the blessing of God for you. And then we sing the doxology together, don't we, to remind ourselves that this has been a tremendous blessing, this time of worship in our lives. Okay, Andy, well, what about the announcements? Well, I don't see where that fits in the regulative principle. How, what about the passing of the fellowship pad? That doesn't seem to fit. Okay, fair enough. All right. We try to put our announcements before the service begins, as you know, but sometimes there's a, there's a need to add something. We don't want that to feel like a halftime break in the service, although perhaps maybe it does. This is the structure of our worship. There's praise and adoration. The Bible wants us to do that. There's contemplation of our own heart and soul in the confession of sin. There's a reminder of the gospel. There's a hearing from God in His Word preached. There's a praying to Him, petitions of our people. It all fits. It's the structure. It's, it's to draw your heart and attention unto the Lord. Lastly, there is the stimulation of worship. What is worship meant to stimulate us to do? And what is it doing to one another even as we're here? I think that's what the writer is getting at. The Bible knows nothing of a solitary religion, as one commentator said. In the teaching of this passage, the exhortation is not simply to exercise a fellowship, but to the stimulation to watch over and care for one another in love. Brian Chappell in his book, Christ-Centered Worship, says this, the horizontal and vertical dimensions of worship actually cannot be isolated in any aspect of worship. Prayer is directed to God, recognizing His glory, but offers petitions for His people, expressing human love. Preaching that fails to show love for God's Word fails to bring Him glory, but preaching that fails to express love for God's people also fails to glorify Him. Praise glorifies the greatness of God and simultaneously encourages God's people with the implicit message that such a great God still delights to hear them. Worship must be offered with concern for God's glory and for the good of His people. Worship cannot be a reflection of the gospel without both concerns. We've talked a lot about this 
this concern and this relationship in worship. And maybe that's what comes to your mind most frequently. But there's also a one another in this time of worship. We're to stir one another up to love and good works. Now, that can happen anytime, anywhere. But there's something about it happening here that I think is a suggestion. It's important that we as the body of Christ do this, but there is an implication that the writer makes here that we need to, I think, dwell on for a moment. If we are to really stir one another up and encourage one another in our faith, that's only going to happen if we know each other. That's only going to happen if we have a relationship. We won't be willing to be stirred up and admonished by people if we don't know them, and certainly if we're not really sure whether or not they care and love for us. I made this remark back in our vision series back in August, and I think it bears repeating here. We are growing as a church, Westminster, and that is very exciting. And yet, unintended consequences from that are, a lot of us, we don't know each other. And so for this to really take hold, we need to get to know one another. To take this, this group of people at our church that has been here a long time and this group of people who has just very recently got here, and the prayer now, the prayer I pray for us, can we mesh this together into a wonderful and loving and caring body of Christ so that passages like this make more and more sense to us. We must engage vigorously in this ministry of encouragement. There's amazing power in us coming together and encouragement. Martin Luther says, At home in my own house there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. I agree with that. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings movies and books. I think the same is true of the Harry Potter story as well. What's the best part of those movies? And don't say that good overcomes evil. That is a good part. of That's not the best part. The best part, without question, and all of that is the friendship. It's the friendship between Frodo and Sam. It's the friendship between Harry, Hermione, and Ron. It's, the, it's how they stick up for each other. It's how they rebuke each other. It's how they remind each other of the importance of what they're doing. It's how that there is no way that any of this would have ever had a success were it not for the way that they came together, the way that they loved, and the way that they cared. It's the same illustration that you can draw from any successful team that there has ever been. It's the chemistry that they had. It's a team sport. You can't do it by yourself. You need your teammates. And it's a wonderful lesson that you learn in team sports. It's these principles We are on a mission together. We are all marching towards glory together. We've got to have each other. You can't do it by yourself. You need to be here. You need the individuals in this body of Christ. Let me say that one more time. You need them. You need them. You need your family. You need others. Because there is someone in the Christian life that you know, they have a grasp on a portion of the Christian life better than you do. They see something more clearly than you do. You need your teammates. I've said this before, but corporate worship truly is the most beautiful thing that God ever created. And something, as your pastor, I get a perspective on this that you don't. You got to stare at the back of everybody's head. I get to see your faces. And let me tell you what I see each Sunday. I see smiles. I see tears. 
I see some yawns. I see pain. I see joy. I see laughter. I see hope. I see despair and a whole lot more. I see those of you out there who have recently lost loved ones, recently got new jobs. I see young and I see old. I see happy and sad. I see those of you who understand the Reformed faith, and for some of you, this is all brand new to you. Some of you, I know this morning, you have never felt close to the Lord. You never felt closer to the Lord. You feel His caring embrace, and some of you also who have never felt further away. You've begun to question His goodness or His existence. You're just not so sure he actually even knows who you are. Some of us come this morning, we have been humbled. Some of us come this morning and we are proud and we need that humbling. And all of us are here this morning. We all came through the back doors and we all sat down and we are all now part of this worship service. We all sang to our great God and Father and Christ our High Priest. And we stand unified before God and one in Christ Jesus, desperately needing his grace encouraging one another with our voices and our presence and our testimony. We need more of this, not less. We need you here every Sunday, not fewer Sundays. We need one another to help one another. Do you realize that your presence in the seats this morning is encouraging to the people around you? Particularly if you sit in the same place, which is most of you, people know when you are not here. Hey, where are the so-and-sos? Where... I realize we can travel and do all those things, but your presence is needed. Your voice is needed. He's calling us to entice one another and stimulate one another and provoke even, I think is the little word there, to love and good deeds. How important it is. Hey, I'm so glad to see you this morning. Hey, I appreciate you singing out this morning. What encouragement that is. If it's true that we have assurance because of what Jesus has done, and we do, if, we, if it's true that we have hope because of what Jesus has done, and we do, it's also true that we have obligations to one another because of what Jesus has done. And isn't it interesting that one of those main obligations is not forsaking the assembling together? And I don't just think that the writer of Hebrews has in his brain, make sure you go to church somewhere every Sunday. I think he's saying, Go to the same place every Sunday and get to know those people and love them and care for them. Lord's Day after Lord's Day, we're going to be committed to the gathering of the saints because we need them. We need your presence and your voice. We need your gifts and your talents here at Westminster. We want to get to know you. We want to share our lives with you. We want to bear your burdens and we want you to bear ours. The author is telling us that Christ's work has just as dramatic an implication for our relationships with each other as it does with Him. And so let us reform ourselves. Let us not be negatively affected by the invention of the internal combustion engine, as I suggested in the beginning. Yes, there's lots of churches that we can attend here in Johnson City. Let's be committed to Westminster. That's not a self-serving comment. This is a place of love and care and of worship. Let's come every Sunday and do all that together. We are not perfect here, but let us commit ourselves to the worship of the triune God and to each other. Let's be committers and not consumers, if you will, all for the sake of Christ and for one another. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this reminder this morning. 
And we thank you for this admonishment from your word. Lord, many of us in our midst, we are quite committed to this church and to you, O Lord. Would you help us to lean into that even further? Others of us, O Lord, we confess we we have been noncommittal to you and to the body of Christ. Would you help us be that way? Help us to commit ourselves, O Lord, to one another and unto you. Lord, we thank you for the access we have unto our great God because of Christ. We thank you for all that he has accomplished. We thank you for the love and mercy that he gives and that we would rejoice in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction and remain standing as we sing the doxology? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV texts may not be quoted in any publication made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.